Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, Don Shula was the winningest coach in the NFL. Of course, he died the other day at age of 90. He was tough on his players, sometimes tough on the writers that covered him as well. But covering him as a beat writer had to be great. And we've got some great coaching stories for you guys tonight from the Bucks, the Rays, the Lightning, even the Minnesota Wild. You want some coaching stories? We've got Tom Jones, my former radio partner and longtime columnist of the Tampa Bay Times, now with the Pointer Institute on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay, talking coaching. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. All right, Tom Jones joins us now, my former radio partner. Of course, you uh, can read him on pointer.org with his newsletter every day. Tom, let's, uh, you know, the other day, uh, Don Shula, of course, the iconic uh, Miami Dolphins and former Baltimore Colts coach, 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 sound like Tracy Wolfson all of a sudden, coach. Um, yeah, that's an inside joke. That's how she says it, though. It is. But um, uh, he, he passed away at age ninety, right? And I don't know. I don't know how many games, like over the course of your career, that you might have had some interaction with the Miami Dolphins or and or Shula. I went down there, like in '95, and I was at his last game, and you know they, they pretty much had moved him out of the way for Jimmy Johnson and whatnot. Um, but I want to I want to talk about coaches tonight and and some of the ones that we've covered because you've covered yeah. some real characters, right. uh, and and so have I. Just the ones the ones every other year in Tampa Bay with the Bucks. But let's start a little bit about your thoughts with 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 Don Shula and and sort of, um, you know, it wasn't surprising at ninety years old that right. he would pass. But but I still think that his place, for whatever reason, I think his place in history is forgotten a lot of times. We talk about Lombardi a lot. We talk about Bill Belichick a lot, right? Somehow, we don't skip over Don Shula, but he's not the first name out of everybody's mouth, which is odd to me. Right, it is odd, because what, he's won more games than anybody, right? Anyone, yeah. So, I think a couple of things there. One was, he was, uh, it's been such a long, it had been such a long time since he won a Super Bowl. What, 19? Right. 73 season, I want to say. 73. They won two years in a row, right? right. They and went they had, three years and won two. Right. They won. They went three years. They won two. They had the perfect season in there. And mm-hmm. then he went back again with Marino, but then ne- you know, never went back again a second time Correct. with Marino. Um, but you're right. I mean, you look at what he did with the Baltimore Colts. Now, he also was a coach of like what many people think, other than the, the undefeated Patriots team that lost to the Giants, might have been the best team to not win a championship was the – the team that lost to the Jets when he was Correct. coaching the Baltimore Colts, they which changed favorites. the entire league, you know, mm-hmm. changed the modern-day NFL. Um, and one of the reasons he ended up in Miami is he tells the story. Uh, the owner, um, Carol Rosenblum, at that time was really upset with him for losing that game. Right. And then the opportunity came came available with Miami, which uh, had started up, and, and he took it because he sensed that, you know, he was never never going to be welcomed in, in Baltimore again. Was really young, too, by the way. Yeah, he, he was. You don't he realize how young. Yeah. yeah. I met him one time. I only talked to him. I never really covered him as when he was coaching. Yeah. But a few, I want to say it was about less than 10 years ago, and he was in Tampa for something. It was some sort of promotional thing. Mm-hmm. He was working with some sort of charity, and it was at one of the, the hotels over in Tampa, and his PR staff called up and said, hey, you want to interview Don Shula? Mm-hmm. And so I went over there. And he was almost like your granddad at that point. He yeah. wasn't like totally on, on, you know, like totally sharp anymore, but, um, but very pleasant, very nice. Now I know I've heard that people covered him said he could be a tough guy, you know, at he times. was tough. And, yeah. yeah. But One you know my, what he, he did, he gave great access though. Like you would yes. never get today. Like he would, he would, um, and he was tough. He remembered, he knew everything you wrote. Like most coaches do. That's the secret, right? That's the biggest coach's lie is I don't read the papers. <laughs> you read everything in the papers. And, in fact, you have people on your staff who underline the quotes. Right. That aside, um, he uh, – because Dave Hyde wrote a really good column about him, uh, and, and, and Dave came on late in his career. He didn't have any more Super Bowls left. I think the last maybe 10 years of his career, Dave Hyde was covering the Dolphins as a columnist. 
Um, and he, he would call you out, but he, he gave you, uh, like you could walk into his office, you, you could get access. You, he was one of the few coaches that you had his phone number, and if you were doing a story and it was late at night and you didn't call him to get, let him have his voice, he was mad at you about it. Yeah. Try doing that today. Right? right, exactly. My favorite Don Shula story, and you may remember this, Rick, it was years and years ago, and uh, it was, the I think, the, the Dolphins were, they had like a joint practice, I think, with the Bucks, yes. and this is when yes, Don Yes, in Shula, Orlando. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for some reason, there was a there was a, something going on with the business side of it. So the Times sent a business writer out to like try to get whoever the owner. I don't know if it was still it would have been Culver House at that time. Zynga could have been anybody. Yeah, yeah. It could have been anybody. It might have been Zynga. You know, you might be right. It might have been Zynga mm-hmm. who was there and it had to do with baseball and blah, blah, blah. So, so we're all out at, the, at, at Orlando somewhere, and Shula comes out, and all of a sudden this mob surrounds Don Shula. And this business writer for the Times, I wish I could remember his name. I, th- I want to say it was a guy named Steve Leesman. Anyway. Well, you, well, you just did. I think it, no, I mean, it's Steve, not, he didn't do anything wrong. You're part th- of the I, podcast, I, buddy. I, I, think it's, I think that was his name. But anyway, so. Let's call him Steve Leesman. Let's call him just Steve Leesman, right. Yeah. So he comes out and he's trying to get a hold of Don, our late friend, Don Banks, you know, yes. who worked at the Times for many years in Sports Illustrated and right. passed away uh, the last summer. And um, and so he needs to desperately get a hold of Don before Don gets back in his car and heads back to Tampa. Well, now Don Banks is sort of falling <laughs> along with Don Shula. He's in the scrum. I know where this he's is in going. The scrum and they're all walking, they're like sort of at the same, <laughs> it's like he's being, he's, he's moving as he's being interviewed, Shula, right? Right. And all of a sudden, Steve Leesman in a panic mode, I believe his name is Steve Leesman, <laughs> in a panic mode, I starts so. yelling at Don Banks going, Don, Don! <laughs> And he said, Don Shula turned and looked like, oh, my gosh, the biggest stalker in the world is coming at me like 100 miles an hour. This guy's going to attack me. It's like, you know, and all of a sudden. No, not you, him. Yeah, Shula actually stopped and looked at Steve Leesman. And then Steve realized what he was doing. He goes, not you, Don, the other Don. And it was like. like, That's that's a great story. Yeah. but um, that. But that's like, yeah, those are my only those are my only two real memories. Did you now you would have covered them at some? Yeah, point. I Did mentioned this it? on the podcast. Yeah, I, I there was one year ninety five. I did some NFL stuff in addition to the Bucks, and um, you know, <laughs> I'll never forget Jack Shepard, who was our sports editor for most of my career. I think um, he uh, we were contemplating like what we should write, you know, and it was like a one weekend in the NFL. And if you recall, like Shula, and I want to say. I think it was Chuck Noll. Those two guys were getting a lot of heat. Uh, I don't know if Chuck Noll was still coaching in 95. Was he coaching the Steelers then, or was that Cower? Uh, I think that's a little too late, yeah. Not, by 95, yeah, yeah Cower was there by 95. Well, anyway, the, the buzzers were – yeah, that was Cower. The buzzers were circling Shula pretty good, and it looked like he might not make the playoffs. And right. they needed to win a game in Miami against somebody. And then the other option was to do Slash. Yeah, well, Cower was definitely catch, coaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 95, Slash was the quarterback. Right. And I remember uh, Jack said, um, oh, you got to do a story on Slash. You got to do Slash. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, Shula, like, it's, they're on fire down there, right? Like they're, they're going to toss out the winningest coach in the history of, of the NFL for Jimmy Johnson, who's a good coach. But, I mean, this is Don Shula, right? Like sure. it's blasphemy going on in Miami. Nah, now nah, you got to just do Slash. So, so Shepard, Jack went into the meeting. And uh, forgive me, Jack, you remember the story if you're listening to the podcast. But he came back out and he was like, well, great things, great minds think alike. You're going to Miami. It's like, what What just happened? You know, but I guess uh, Paul Tasher, one of our editors, decided, yeah, I got to do a story on Shula. So I went down there and, you know, and it was it was it was it was tough because, you know, he was he was wounded at that point. You know, I mean, here's right. here's an iconic coach and it, all but. All but been replaced by Jimmy Johnson and everybody, you know, the the writers down there are writing that that should happen. And um, but Shula wins the game and gets in the playoffs at nine and seven, and they're going to Buffalo uh, for a wild card game. And I went to Buffalo. Boy, this is when we had money. Yeah. Uh, I went. I went to Buffalo, and I remember I sat next to Drew Rosenhaus for some reason, and Drew was there representing somebody, half the team in Miami probably, and. They got thumped pretty good. They lost by like 15 to the Bills on a freezing cold Buffalo day. And it just seemed odd to me that, you know, we were kind of outside the locker room, people gathered around. And Shula was never great after games as far as talking about games. But, like, this was it. 
this or and, and it was still speculative. It wasn't a definitive thing, but like with a day or so, he was gone. And I just thought, boy, this is how you're. This is how an iconic, you know, thirty year career, or whatever it was, ends. You know, at Rich Stadium on a freezing cold day with just a bunch of dudes around outside the locker room. You know, um, but yeah, he was. Uh, but he was a guy that gave time for everybody. It got me to thinking uh, with Don Shula and, and the story I read from Dave Hyde is you and I, especially you, I mean, you covered, you covered a lot of hockey. You covered some real characters mm-hmm. uh, in, in coaching uh, in all sports, right? And, and I, I, of course, have, for better or worse, done the Bucks the last uh, two, three decades. So I've had my share. But I'm just – I'm interested, like, obviously Tortorella, right, was, was the one that, that – won a championship here. Yeah. Um, and Gruden won a championship here. And those guys are crazy individuals and right. have their own sort of personas. And, and, and you kind of, you know, you see it like they're very emotional and, and Torts was known as really tough. Um, but you always, you always got along really well with Torts, but not everybody in the media did. Not that that's important, but some of the players didn't like him while they were while they were being coached by him, right? Right, that's true. He was very hard on the players, but I will say this: he has this he has a reputation that that his and then really his bark is worse than his bite. He really was not actually. You almost might be the other way around. Is you know, is like his bark sometimes could be loud, but there really was. You know, it was like he was one of those guys, Rick, that I really enjoyed covering day in and day out. Now there were some times where he could be a little just ornery to the point where he didn't feel like doing it. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, like this, this ad, this reputation he had for jumping on reporters, that really wasn't true. I mean, he, now for a lot of that time, there wasn't much media out there. There were a lot of days where it was just me and the guy from the Tribune, whether it was, you yeah. know, uh, usually Eric Erlinson back in those days. Mm-hmm. And like Eric and I would, would cover it. And then we'd sit in a room with him for 45 minutes and he would talk hockey and he was, he was great. The players respected him and that he treated the players well in terms of like days off. Like he would, he understood that they were elite athletes. They needed special treatment sometimes, but this, this idea that all oh, you'd like, I, I've had people come to you. You must've hated covering Tortorella. I loved covering Tortorella. I thought he was, now he and I had a couple dustups. What's the worst you, dust up you had? The worst dust up. We, there were two actually. There was, there was one where, um, I kind of snapped at him, and it was actually sticking up for another writer. And what had happened was they were in the playoffs. It was 2004. They're playing in the playoffs, and Nikolai Hobby Bowen has a shutout. And one of the reporters asked him after the game, uh, Torts, what, when, do you see something in, in Hobby's eyes that lets you know his, you know he's on tonight? Mm-hmm. And Torts looked at the reporter and he's like, What? He goes, is there, do you see something like, is it, can you hit, does he have a look? Can you see in his eyes? Like, yeah, tonight's the night. He said, I don't know. He's got a mask on and he's 200 feet away. I can't see what his eyes look like. Ugh. And I, it really bugged me that he picked on this reporter who's a good guy. And I said, you know what he's, you know what he means, Torts? Mm-hmm. And Torts looked at me and goes, what? I go, you know what question he's asking? Mm. Well, afterwards, like Torts came up to me and said like, what, what was that? I go, what was that? What were you doing? I'm like, that guy's asking a decent question. He's trying to basically kiss your goaltender's ass. Mm-hmm. And you, like, jump on Like, why would you jump on him like that? And he, and then Torch would go, yeah, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't have done that. There was the other time was he called me out in New York. I'd written something about a player who was being scratched. I want to say it was Andre Waugh was the player, mm-hmm. or Chris Dingman, one or the other. And they were being scratched. And I talked to the player, and the player was like, look, I think I should be playing, blah, blah, blah. And I just quoted the player. Yeah. And I mentioned, like, you know what, there are, have been opportunities for this guy to get in, and he hasn't gotten in. And I had asked Torts about it. Hey, what about this guy not playing? And he said, yeah, I'm not discussing lineups. Well, then the next day, the story runs. He calls me out at Madison Square Garden after the morning skate. He goes, hey, can I talk to you a minute? And I said, sure. And we go underneath like sort of the bleachers there. And he goes, what the F was that story today? And I go, what? And I told him, I quote him, he goes, that's, you know, that none of that is true. That's not why he's not playing. I said, you know what, Torts, I asked you yesterday and you wouldn't tell me. Yeah. And I go, so you lose any right to yell at me today. That's right. If I'm you know? wrong, you had your And he sort of got it after that. But mm-hmm. other than that, I'm telling you, those were the only two times we really, like, kind of got in any dust-ups. And I, and I really enjoyed covering him. And, and I would wonder, Rick, if there's any similarities between him and Gruden. You covered Gruden. And I know maybe on the other side, like, from the outside, 
I looked at Gruden and said, oh, he must have been a blast to cover. But was he all the time or no? Um, no, he wasn't all the time. John, John is one of these guys, and I think it's well documented that, you know, he has this edge to him. And I think all the great ones do, right, whether they're players or coaches. It doesn't matter what they accomplish. Um, but in John's case, you know, he was sort of the runt, right? Like Jay was the big, tall, strapping quarterback that, you know, had the Division One scholarship at Louisville and all that stuff. And John was the third stringer, you know, at Dayton. And so John John sort of – John was a grinder. I mean, you see the Gruden's grinder. I tell you what, the Gruden grinder. That's who he is, though. Like he, he outworked everybody. That was his deal. And – um, you know, his dad was a coach and he was the, the ball boy growing up at Notre Dame and all those things. And, um, and, and so, but he saw himself, I mean, he knew, and remember now this guy was the youngest coach, I think in the national football league when he was hired by Al Davis, I know he was the youngest to win a Super Bowl. that I know for a fact, right in his thirties, um, like he was in his young, yeah, very early thirties. Right. Cause he was a coordinator with the Eagles before uh, Al Davis hired him. And, and he had a lot of success pretty early on. I mean, they, you know, the tuck rule game and, and they would have probably gone to the Super Bowl if not for that call. It's hard to believe Brady's still playing right after all those years. <laughs> Jesus. Um, and so, you know, but when he got to Tampa, you got to remember, like he didn't, he wasn't allowed to bring anyone. He couldn't bring a single coach, right? They traded two ones, two twos and $8 million and said, go, go take these guys to the Super Bowl because Tony Dungy, who built this thing, couldn't get him over the hump. That's a big, you know, he didn't ask to leave Oakland. He didn't. He was traded. Right. And and he didn't know anyone. And he he took that team, which was, you know, obviously an elite defense, added some accountability to the offense, was a brilliant play caller, and then everything sort of fell into place. Um, but, but, you know, when he was winning, there was no one better to cover than John Gruden. Mm. unfortunately he wasn't always winning sure. and you know that first year i thought holy cow this because john much like tortorello he'd write you 12 stories a year just by what he said oh yeah you know what i mean i mean he was just he was always on and that's what brad johnson would tell you like it didn't matter what kind of you come dragging in there at 6 a.m gruden had been up three hours and had nine cups of coffee and when he got into the meetings you know it was like you like this knock on wood if you like that that's who he is he was always on and gruden was terrific for us Except then you started hearing some of the same material over and over again, yeah, you know, right. and it really didn't change that much. Um, but I remember, you know, I wrote this story about Bron, Brad Johnson once, and John, Brad Johnson at one point had like 15 touchdowns and like four interceptions, right? And he was just playing at a very, very high level. And uh, just out of nowhere, he'd just go, I read your stories, I like your stuff, you know? And, and he didn't. It, it was all kind of like crap in a way, but... That's when he was winning, everybody loved being around John Gruden. But even after he won the Super Bowl, and I tell the story a lot, like he was he was miserable two weeks later at the NFL Combine because and everybody that's where you take your bows. Every coach, every GM, every scout's there, and they were coming up to Gruden. Take your victory lap. Take your lap, John. It's like you you're the youngest coach to win a Super Bowl and you did it with the Bucks, right? And he was he you know when he's on the podium after the Super Bowl he th- he said you know Ed Tony left me a good team some big shoes to fill you know that kind of thing so he's gracious to Dungy and I caught him like at a one of these cocktail hours they have at these owners meetings in Arizona and um, I go hey it must be cool you got all your peers here they're coming up thing he goes ah, I can't stand it I go what do you mean he goes I feel mis I'm miserable and he was always miserable. And he go and I said, "Well, John, this is where you take your bows." He goes, "I feel like a big red tomato. Everybody just wants to take a bite out of me. They're just trying to butter me up so they can kick my ass next year." You know what I mean? And I was like, "Wow, that's your like." He yeah. was right back in it. But when things are going bad, they they that was he he was a he was a hard guy to cover. I tell you what, though, Rick, the thing that I really liked about Torch, though, and I don't know how Gruden was with this or other coaches you covered, but Torch treated the main beat writers very well. Like sometimes you'll see coaches when the out of town guys come in or the national guys, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. like they get the special treatment. Tortorella, he really respected the guys that were there every day, yeah. And so he treated those guys well. And like I said, I, I, he'll go down as one of my favorite coaches for the most part. He was, for as far as I, he may not answer you. But he would never lie to you, um, and he was he was pretty straight with you for the most part. So 
overall, like for his reputation of like, oh, he's a bad guy to deal with, uh, just the opposite. I thought he was a great guy to deal with. Yeah, I think Gruden, Gruden liked people that worked hard like him, and he figured out pretty early on, you know, uh, he, I, think, I think for the most part, John, the reason he's such a good broadcaster is he always spoke in great sound bites, and um, he knew what you wanted, and you were going to get it. You know what I mean? Like you didn't yeah. have to. You didn't have to dig too hard. You could just say, "Hey, what about?" So, and he would he would give you a great soundbite. So that part was good. But you know who he was? Like he had this sort of like he's he's a tough guy now. You know, what I mean, he has that sort of swag about him, right? He's a, he's a rock star. Um, and but he we had this thing, and Chris Harry started this. He used to work for the Atlanta Sentinel. He's now at Gator Zone because um, we were all fans of the movie A Few Good Men. Sure. And Gruden and Colonel Nathan Jessup are the same guy. They're just played by different people. Like Jack Nicholson is Jessup and Gruden is Gruden. But there really are. And, and there was even a, an occasion where they, they cut um, uh, the kicker, Grammatica, Martin Grammatica, because he kept missing big field goals, like huge field goals, right? And even after all his success, they cut him. And it was kind of a sad day and because everybody liked Martin. Um and he had a brother named Santiago. So we would do, Martin did, so we, who could kicked at USF. So we would do this whole few good men thing because they had, they had a, a kick block. Guy got came through the A gap. And, you know, so we would do this thing. Ever have a guy come through the A gap? Ever asked another guy to cover the A gap? No, sir. No, sir. Ever play special teams? No, sir. We cover the A gap or kicks get blocked. It's as simple as that. You know, we would go on and say, you know, the release of Santiago's brother while tragic probably saved games. You know, and he was really that's how Gruden would would talk if you right. asked him sort of an attack attack mode question. But um one of the hardest that, times I ever laughed when you and I were covering <laughs> covering stuff together is you and and I and Greg Allman, who's now at the Athletic, where we mm-hmm. were Greg was driving. You're in the front seat. I'm in the back. And we were in Dallas or Kansas City or somewhere trying to get to the stadium. We got sort it was of got DC. turned around. It was, it was Washington. It was FedEx, FedEx Stadium. Oh, that's right. And we were doing. And you're doing John Gruden. If John Gruden was the GPS, and, the Gruden positioning system. And your your imitation. I can't even do Gruden. I'm not even going to try. Because if you can't do it, don't try it. But you were doing this whole thing about stop, turn around. Because you know? it was it was perfect because yeah. the GPS would be the Gruden positional system. And we were like, we could see the stadium because it's the biggest stadium in Virginia, maybe the only stadium, I don't know, one of the biggest ones. And so it was like, turn right, you know, that, yeah, you went too far, make a Yui, Jiminy <laughs> I, Christmas. You had me What's laughing wrong? so hard. And we're going, to, yeah. welcome to the Gruden, you know, because you always have that woman's voice that's very calm. It's like, you know, yeah. turn left turn 10,000 left. feet. Yeah, right. What, recalculating. Uh, is, he like, your, recalculating. Is, is he your recalculating? Is he your not like favorite in terms of um, like not not that you like like guys that you like, but the person you enjoyed. Which coach did you most enjoy? Tony Dungy. Covering? Really, Tony. Yeah, Tony Dungy. Yeah, only because you know. First of all, that that whole era, if you remember how many years they lost double digit, and he came in there, and everybody told him if he went eight and eight, that would be they'd throw a parade. Right. Well, he had one losing season, and they didn't throw a parade. They threw him out of town. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he actually was uh, – his key didn't work, you know, after he lost to Philadelphia uh, one time. But, it, it you know, Dun- Dungy, um, Dungy was authentic. Like, you know, and, and you think back, you know, there was only a couple African-American head coaches so far at that time, I think. Um, you know, and so from that standpoint, he was a, kind of a trailblazer understated guy he had this thing too where he would like his socks had to be perfect um like during practice i'd sit there at lunch and he'd like roll them down exactly two inches from his from his ankles it was weird but he was he was just a uh, a consistent football guy believed you know in 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 not doing it the way everybody did it you didn't have to spend you know a thousand hours you didn't have to sleep in your office the kids could run around the building you know, um, but everybody respected him. And it was kind of a Camelot era yeah. for Bucks football in that they turned, they really did turn a corner from out of nowhere. They were, you know, they're not much better now, but they, they were really bad then. And, um, in fact, this is the worst, if you can believe that, the last 10 years was the worst decade of Buccaneer football. That's crazy. That's Nuts crazy. Nuts to think that. But before Dungey got here, it was pretty bad too. So I mean, Tony was really good. There's been some. I mean, there's been some characters. We can go. We can go through a bunch of them. But 
Um, you know, I mean, I started with Ray Perkins his last year, that far back. Right. And and Ray was a, Ray was a tough guy. Him and Richard Williamson both were pretty pretty tough from from Alabama. Played for Bear Bryant, succeeded Bear Bryant at Alabama. Right. You know, and uh, but Ray Ray was a character. They had that. Tell the story. This one story real quick is that they had this fullback William Howard, and this is when they had three a days. If you can believe that, imagine how weak the union was. Three a day practices <laughs> in the hot sun at Tampa. Doing like and, Oklahoma drills and stuff. Oh, yeah. oh, totally. Oh, yeah. That's all they did. And they were full pads. You know what I mean? One practice with special teams, they were still in pads. And so they had this fullback, and he came in a little overweight. His name was William Howard. He's from Tennessee. And he was their starter the year before. And William Howard came in, and um, he didn't practice. And we were like, why didn't William Howard practice? And he's like, well, he's a little overweight. So we uh, we held him out until he can make weight. I was like, well, how many pounds was he overweight? No, he's about seven pounds overweight. So we're going we're gonna to make sure he's, in, he's underweight before he gets out there. So every day they had this guy for like two weeks. It was only like seven or ten pounds. Every day they had this guy out there in a rubber suit, you know, in the hot sun during all two hours of three practices, right. like six hours a day. And he'd be, he'd be working out. He'd be running on a bike, right, a stationary bike, just pedaling. And every day we'd come into the lunchroom at UT and we invariably ask, so what about William Howard? Well, he did make weight. And so, you know, every day. This goes on for two weeks. And finally we come in and we say, um, you know, what about William Howard? He goes, yeah, he made weight. I'm like, oh, okay, so he made weight? Yeah, he made weight, and I cut him. We <laughs> <laughs> looked at each other like, wait a minute, What? He had that poor guy out there for two weeks, and then when he made weight, he cut him. That's funny. Yeah, so that's who he was. But uh, you covered Jock. You covered Jock Demurs, who was. A I covered Jock Demur and Jacques Lemaire. I covered both of them. Jock Demur. Jock Demur had the, the my favorite Jock Demur story was they were they, they and they were bad. Remember when Jock was here? Oh yeah. And, but he was a great. And so were the owners. A, yeah. Just a sweetheart of a man, truly one of the nicest people that you'd ever want to meet, almost to a fault. Like he was he so badly wanted to be liked by everybody. Yeah. Um, and he was, um, again, just a sweetheart of a man. But then, you know, they were, it was late in the season. It was like maybe March or something like that. And they had like four days off, five days off, which is rare at, yeah. at that time of the season. And they were probably like, you know, enough points out of a playoff spot that, you knew they weren't going to make it, but not so far out that it was impossible. So it had was like, to try. Ah, yeah. yeah, if they could win like 17 of their last, you know, 22. 20. And they, mm-hmm. they haven't won 17 all year. So they're like in the first 60. So there was what, what made you think that was going to yeah. happen? But they decide, okay, with this five days off, we're going to go back. It's going to go back to basics, back to training camp. They, you oh. know, the first day they did drills like they do the first day of camp. It's going to be, and we're going to come out with a whole new attitude. It's like a whole new season, this playoff push. And they come out the first night, they play the New York Islanders at home and lose 4 nothing. And it was just a horrible. <laughs> you know, they get out shot like 45 to 16, something crazy. And so Jacques comes in after the game, after, and he comes to the press conference. He goes, uh, I don't know what to do. I, I throw up my hands with these guys. I, <laughs> that's I, a good uh, imitation. He goes, that's, that's, I lived with the guy practically yeah. for, for two years yeah. ago. I throw up my hands. I, I, uh, I work them hard. I, I don't work them. I give them days off. I work them extra hard. I make them come in early, stay out. Uh, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with them. And a guy for, for one of the TV stations, I can't remember who it was, said, can you shoot them? Yeah. <laughs> and Jacques goes, a part of me, he goes, uh, can you shoot him? He goes, you know what? I try, to be, I try to be respectful with you people. I come in here every day, even after we get our asses kicked in, and I talk to you and I treat you with respect, and this is how you're going to treat me? Well, you know what? You all can go to hell. And he slams the door and walks out. And I'm thinking, I've never seen this from Jacques. And I'm like, yeah. you know what? Good for Jacques. Yeah. And he opens up the door and he says, not all of you, just some of you. <laughs> Couldn't you oh, just walk off? He couldn't do the walk off. He's still so bad. But the, like the famous story about Jacques, of course, was like uh, some of the things he used to say in the locker room where he goes, all right, this third period's going to separate the men from the boys. Let's go get them, boys. Uh, <laughs> and then there was another one I can't say because it, it involves the F word. But he was yeah, yeah. the master at either putting his foot in his mouth or whatever. But such a, such a nice guy. And it was funny, you know, he – he would comment about articles you like he was one of those guys who 
would freely admit that he read your story, but then he came out years later and said that he was illiterate. Remember that? That's he right. Had to say, and I and I was like, wow, really? Because used to give me a hard time about some of the things I wrote back in the day. Jacques Lemaire was the guy who I learned more from. I covered him in Minnesota the first three years I was okay. in Minnesota. Okay. He was the he was, you know, Stanley Cup. His, his name's on the yeah. Stanley Cup ten times or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Something ridiculous. Smartest guy I ever knew. You know what's interesting with him, Rick, and, and you you can relate to this. First day that we met, we sort of sat down, he and and I and the guy from the St. Paul paper who covered the team every day. So, okay, let's sort of go over the ground rules. Like, you know. Wow. And I said to him, how do you feel? Like, what's your off-the-record policy? He like, because yeah. a lot of times, you know, guys will tell you stuff off the record. Oh, yeah. And Jacques was the only coach I ever dealt with, I'd ever dealt with who said, I will never go off the record with you if ever. If I say it, you write it. If right. I say it, you can write it. That way there's no confusion. Now, there were a lot of days where Jacques goes, I'm not telling you. <laughs> yeah. I mean. You're right. I'm saying know, nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. But he would – Everything, and he was also one of those guys who told me he's like, I, I never, I never read what you write. So one day they're playing somebody, and uh, and they come out, and they score two power play goals, and they win the game two to one. Well, in that morning's paper, I had written in the scouting report that they had the worst power play in the NHL, and I actually misread it. They had the worst like road power play or something mm. like that. And so after the game, I asked Shock, I said, or somebody asked Shock, like, hey, your power play came through. He goes, yes, I uh, was very pleasantly surprised, especially since I read the Tom Jones this morning, who say uh, we have worst power play in the league, even though we don't, but glad to see the power play. So afterwards, I said, or not even afterwards, like in that interview, I said, Shock, I thought you said you never read the papers. He goes, today was the first day I ever did, and you had a mistake. So there I go. I'll never read you again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but he was, no, he was, he was a really, really good deal. Really, really good guy. My favorite guy, Rick. You talk about Tony Dungy. Yeah, we both covered this guy, Joe Madden. I think is as good oh, as it gets as far as yeah, covering somebody. You covered him a few series here and there over the years. I covered you him for got, a month. Yeah. All I needed was one month with Joe Madden, and we've been—I wouldn't say friends, but I mean, I, I mean, I guess we're friends. We no, we've at done that point, he knows socially. your wife's name. He knows your daughter's names. He knows oh, he knows everything up. about he you. He's invited. I got invited to his 60th birthday party. I mean, it was weird. You know, I didn't it's get just, that invite. Jeez. Oh, sorry. Well, I made a bigger impression. What can I tell you? There you go. I was more of a beat guy. You were the columnist. You were That's Mr. True. Big Shot. That's right. You know what I mean? But he was there was I there were very few people I ever covered that would um just I mean, just good a good guy. Like a yeah. really good guy, you know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Told great stories. Some people, though, got tired of... Look, Joe likes, likes him some Joe. Let's be honest, okay? Sure. I mean, he's uh, and and but you know he waited his whole life, and I mean his entire life in baseball to become manager and took over a franchise that was losing a hundred every year and took him to the freaking World Series right and almost won it. Um, probably should have if not for maybe a, a bad decision in Philadelphia not to call the game, but um, but he did things differently. But he he had he always had had this sort of swag about him, right and. Most of the moves he made were, were correct, and a lot of the things the Rays did, whether it was Joe or maybe the organization or, or you know what have you, the shifts and all that, they've become a staple now of baseball. And I, All I know, Rick, is he took over the Rays when they were horrible. Nobody had given him a chance before, and he turned it, the worst franchise in sports, into a near World Series winner. And then he goes to Chicago that hadn't won a World Series in 100 years. And does it. Yeah. And won it. You know? Yeah. Incredible. And, and and now let me ask you this. Do you so, think so he's, if you is want he to be, going to the Baseball Hall of Fame? Yes. If he if I, he does nothing yeah. else with mm. the Cal, with the LA Angels or whatever the hell they're called these days. Yeah. I think he's so. He's a Hall of Famer? I think so. I mean, if we're just going to look at numbers and stats. One, and world, one world Series? One World Series, went to another. Two different teams, two different leagues. Um, I think he's going to. Two teams no. that would never go to a World Series, right. you would think. Right, exactly. So in seven yeah. years in Chicago, and yeah. as you just mentioned, Rick. Now, whether it was all organ, you know, there was a lot of organization 
uh, involvement. On both ends, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, as far as the shifts, and he embraced all that. and Platooning this, players. And, and, like, yeah. and I know, look, I was there for a lot of this. So were you, Rick. And there were times where guys would roll their eyes when he's bringing, like, the penguins, you know, snakes and penguins and belly dancers and magicians and sword eaters. The dress up on the planes it. and all that. Yeah, yeah, like, there were a lot of guys who would roll their eyes at that, that sort of thing. But there were also a lot of guys who... Really enjoyed that. And I go back to this with Kevin Cash, too, Rick, and people can talk about. And I think finally people have started Understood to realize it, yeah. That, yeah, that, he's, that he knows what he's doing. It's not easy to manage a franchise where you're telling guys you're going to pitch one inning today and then you're no, coming out of the tough. game. It's tough. And you're going to play three innings and you're going to stand in short right field when you're a second baseman. And then I'm taking you out of the game. And it, to get 25 guys to buy in like that every night and no one complaining. Like, that takes skill. That takes talent. It's one thing to have the organization, like, put the plan in place, but to implement it, to actually go out and execute it, I, I give those guys credit. For that. Well, you got two things with the Rays, and one is is that it's sort of run from the front, right? Like, the front office does a lot of it, you know, with again, with the analytics, with the the, the salary and, and, you know, moving players in and out. You, you know you can't keep David Price. You can't – you know, you're losing your best players – um, so you have to have a buy-in from the manager just to let that happen, right? But I think, like, Kevin Cash has this um, sort of great self-awareness of both where the Rays are up against it, right, in the American League East, also embracing it. But but also he has, like, this self-deprecating, you know, I wasn't a very good player. Like, but, he, what, but he is a hell of a manager, and he has great relationships with players. And he he's, he's a – like he's a player's manager in the sense, not like Madden was, although I, Madden, I would have thrived under Madden because all he does is take the pressure off of everybody. Right. You know, that that's the way you play the game. Like the, the less, it's one of the few games that if you try harder, you're going to fail, right? You can try harder and, and, and play defense in basketball. You can try harder in football and that helps you. You can't try harder in baseball. You actually right. got to try less. But But I think Kevin Cash... Imagine, I mean, he succeeded Joe Madden. That those are huge uh, shoes to fill, and and inherited most of his coaches when he did it. Now he has his own guys kind of in there, but um, for to to turn that around again um, and win ninety seven games, I mean, that's the tragedy of this whole coronavirus from a Rays standpoint, right? I mean, there's bigger tragedies, obviously, with all the the death and and, and sure, the infections yeah, yeah. and things, but from a sports standpoint, is that. This franchise was looking to build on what happened last year and it seems like 100 years ago now with going to the playoffs and, and taking the Astros to five games and who knows if they were banging drums or not. Um, but for Cash to do that after Madden, I think right. is remarkable to me. I just Well, two things I'll bring up as far as coaches go. One is I, I, we can't have this discussion without for a second talking about Lou Pinella, another one of the like true. my truth favorite guys character to cover. what a funny character, yeah. and he you know and here's a couple of things that he did like along the line was was um there was a time we were uh, we were somewhere on the road and something happened there was a controversy with an umpire and a, people were trying to get it uh i think bj upton got kicked out of a game it was one of mm-hmm. his first games and mm-hmm. and uh bj was kind of, you know he was kind of you know trying to protect bj but then afterwards he uh he asked the other writers, he's like, ah, can, can, he, can I have just my beat writers in here for a few minutes? And it was me and Scott Carter for, at the Tampa Tribune. Yeah. And, and everybody left, and Scott and I stood there. He goes, hey, look. like, And he kind of ripped into B.J. Upton. He goes, that shouldn't have happened. You know, and don't let him off the hook. And mm-hmm. he wasn't telling us what to write, but he yeah. would a lot of times give the local guys, and I'm sure yeah. Mark Topkin could tell a thousand stories about that, where he would treat the local guys really, really well. Um, and, he, you know, he was also one of those guys that, Again, his reputation was he might have been tough to cover. The players loved playing for him. Here's the thing, too, that the guy could play, man. He was a good – you remember him as a player, Rick. Oh, yeah. The guy was a baller, man. He could mm-hmm. he could really play the game. The other thing I want to mention about coaches, and, and I'm not going to put you on the spot because I don't cover it anymore. I mean, people ask me all the time, was there anybody you didn't like? Like, yeah, there were a couple guys. Like, I don't think it's any secret. Like, I liked Dirk as a guy, Dirk Cutter. He didn't like you. I and like overall, like looking back, like yeah, I didn't enjoy covering them. Like and yeah. and this whole attitude of like that I was picking on them, or I'm like, you look, you guys stunk when you when you <laughs> you guys weren't any good. But I actually, it's funny. Like the times that I was really the columnist 
covering the butt when I was out at the Bucks, there were three coaches: Shiano, Lovey, and uh, and Dirk. I got along with Shiano better than all of them. Like I liked Greg Shiano, which like, is weird, right? I, yeah, and I look, and I'm, I'm Greg, I think Greg was great. Greg was great socially. He was. He would like at owners meetings and things. You could sit down, have a glass of wine. He'd tell you stuff. Right, like Greg would tell you. And stuff, he's a bit of a not, look. He's a big a bit of a BSer. I get it. You know? Totally. Yeah, he's, he's central a, casting coach, tough guy. Right. Yeah. And I don't know that I would have liked playing for him. No. And I and I'm not sure he was always telling me the truth, and he was always sort of telling you what you wanted to hear. Which yeah, well, I'm fine by that. But yeah. um, but I actually like I didn't mind covering him. Like Lovey, I thought I, I didn't like Lovey. I just not a, like, this not Tom? as a person. Not as is a this person. Is this Tom? Not as a person, but as just a. I think those guys went in, and maybe it was my own fault. Those guys went in with the attitude that I didn't like them, or that I was there to get them. And I was just. I don't like, think. I don't think. I never see. I never sensed that Lovey thought you were out to get him. Necessarily. Well, I'm sure. Maybe. Like, like Lovey. The thing the about day, Lovey, from when I learned I thought, this, I learned funny. this after he left the Bucks and went to Chicago because David Hall, who does radio up there, that used to work, you know, columnist for the Chicago Tribune. Yeah. And and Lovey went through some great years, went to a Super Bowl, lost to Tony Dungy, but also went through some tough years. But he averaged like nine and a half wins a year, so they basically were pretty good. But Chicago now, that's a tough media town, right? Sure. The Bears are the biggest thing going and always have been. And it's a Bears town. And yet, like, with Lovey, you were either with him or you weren't. Like, Lovey had this sort of, like, idea that, or at least his, maybe his family did. I don't know if it was Lovey. Lovey might have understood the media a little bit better than that. But, like, there were people around him and his family that were like, you're, you're, you're one of those people. Like, you're not on his side. Yeah. And if you're not on his side, you you didn't mean as much to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, perfect. It makes perfect sense. And see, I felt this like at the ultimately at the end of the day, I don't like I don't think Lovey like spent any nights tossing and turned with my name. No, his, no, not care. at that point in his career, he didn't care. Right? No. Yeah. Um, and he wouldn't have give you anything though. He he did spit out a lot of you know right. cliches and right. And and as far as Dirk goes, again, it goes back to the I think Dirk. I think Dirk went in every press conference. As soon as I started opening my mouth, he thought, "Okay, what's he going to try to get me on today?" And I and I, I feel bad that he thought that because I never felt that. I never was one who was like, "I hope he gets fired." Or I never called for either guy's head, either one. Um, but I did. I also, I also, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also looking back, looking back, like, look, you guys were you guys were bad yeah. when you were the head coach and well, I'm Cutter not was it's all one. His Cutter fault. was nine Cutter was nine and seven his first year. He, right. Nine and seven. And I and, and I came wrote from good things about which is why I said I would have given him even when he got fired. Yeah, you I, I think year. I wrote that I would have given him right before that. I'm like, yeah, give him give him another year. I got yeah. why they fired him and the you know and the change that they made turned out to be a, a, apparently a good one. But um, well, we'll see. Yeah. But I mean I mean he got replaced by a guy that, that has Way more credentials. Let's put it that way. Sure, Bruce Arian, two-time NFL Coach of the Year. But but Arians, we thought that because I remember Jason Light saying, you know what, Cutter reminds me of Bruce Arians is that he got his job when he was fifty-seven years old and he was never a head coach, but now you know, and it didn't work out for him. But let's be honest: if your quarterback falls, Tom, in this yeah. game in the NFL, guess what? You know, Don Shula had advice. Don Shula, this this goes back to Don Shula was we started. But Don Shula had this advice. I forget which coach it was. It was one of the coaches um, that was interviewed after he died. And um, he said, did he ever give you any advice? He said, yeah, he gave me, he gave me one piece of advice. He said, you better win right away. <laughs> I said, what? He said, no, you need to win, and you need to win right away. Because if you win right away, they'll keep you around for a while, even if you lose a couple, a couple years. Mm-hmm. He says, but if you don't win right away, you're gone. So you better hit it fast, and Makes you know sense. what? When you think about it, sure. that's kind of that's the way it is. If you're if you're unproven, so to speak, you don't. If you're not Jimmy Johnson coming from Dallas, right? Um, you don't, if you don't have that that success in your in your resume, even Lovey Smith, Lovey Smith was only in Tampa Bay what two years, mm-hmm. right? And they paid him for three more after that, and he went to Illinois. So and they knew Lovey Smith. They brought him here for a reason after after Greg Schiano, which by the way. That was an interesting year, a couple of years with Graciano. Oh, I, yeah, look, of the three, if you ask me which one I would hire, he'd be third on my list. But you're mm-hmm. actually, as a sports writer, which one I most in, like enjoyed covering? It was Shiano. 
just because I, I didn't get along with Lovey or Dirk. I just, yeah. they didn't like me, and I really didn't, I really didn't like them. Toes on the line, blowing, blowing the whistle. whistle. Yeah. But this, this attitude of, oh, like, oh, we wake up in the morning, like, oh, let's, let's, uh, I'm going to see if I can take out Dirk. I'm going to get him. Yeah. Like, no, that's, I, no, man, I'm just writing what happens. Your well, and that's the bad. thing. You had it harder because you wrote opinion more than analysis, yeah. and I wrote right. more analysis, and people thought it was my opinion. But I, I think the columnist job is a lot different because, it you know, if anyone's gonna gonna call for someone to lose their job, right, or right. or build a case for it, let's say, it's gonna be that guy, right? And and that's a hard position to be in sometimes. Is that you know you realize you're not just talking about the head coach; you're talking about his thirty assistants, their families, sure. their kids, all that stuff. So it's a big responsibility, and you didn't. I don't think you called for their. Firing. I never called. I've never. You know, it's funny. Like the, I, people think I'm negative, and I have this reputation for being negative. Well learned, I might have. Yeah. And here's the thing: like I've never called for anybody to be fired before they got before it happened. Now there have been times where guys have been fired, and I said, "Okay, I kind of get that. I understand why they did it." Sure. But I never went into. I never. You you can't find a column where I said this guy this should guy. be fired. Now yeah, I wrote done. a couple that I said I can't. I think I wrote one time after Lovey lost. I'm trying to think where they lost. I said Washington. Yeah, yeah. They blew the I'm big like, lead. Yeah, they're never. You done. like that game with Kirk yeah. Cousins? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think I said after that he'll he will never have a winning record, and they will they will he will he will not survive this. Now mm-hmm. I didn't say he shouldn't, but right. I mean, those, you know, but anyway, it's you know, it's it's uh, it's fun to look back at at somebody's coach. Well, I'm not going to put you too much on the spot. You don't have to name no, go names, ahead. but were there guys that you? Just didn't like covering like coaches, managers, or anybody like. Eh, I could do without this guy. I mean, they all, you know. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the context of the team. Can I say the Bucks haven't been very good for a while? Right. I mean, seriously. I, I mean, I think you know people. They and and we get this all the time. It's like, oh come on, you want them to win, right? And it's like, no, we gave away our fan card, and it's hard to explain that to people. I grew up in Tampa Bay. I was a Bucks fan until I was like 16, you know what I mean? Um, but then when I went to college and I became a journalist, like you, you really do, you, you have to separate that. You can't root for, I, we, we root for good stories. So if, if whatever the good story is, I root for me. You know sure. what I mean? I don't root for overtime games on Monday night football <laughs> decided by a field goal because I have no time to write. Right. I mean, so that's, you know, when Tom, when I meet Tom Brady, if that ever happens, I'll make sure to tell him, Hey, Great comeback, greatest of all time in the Super Bowl. Yeah, down twenty-eight to three. I had the worst night of my life because of you. Okay, <laughs> like I had a killer story with you sprawled out on the carpet. The guy returning the pick six. This is how the dynasty falls. This is how the king loses his crown. Like all of that. You know what I mean? Like I was good with it, right? Yeah. And it was early, man. It was like halftime, and then you came back. You know, and I had like three versions of the story, but I I think that. I think they all, in their own way, like there's been some difficult years. Like I remember, and I've always told you this, you know this too, you always want to be special good or special bad as far as copy goes, right? Like it, right. with the NFL, it's crisis or carnival. The eight and eight is the worst place you can live. Seven and nine, eight and eight, right? I mean, right. last year there was, there was Jameis drama. No matter what happened, last year was going to be about Jameis Winston, right? You knew it. You knew that that's why B.A. was here. He was going to save this guy for the franchise, make him – be he's so close to being the man he wants to be it's kind of like jerry Maguire, you know uh and um so you knew that that was everything was going to be viewed that way and and then it looked like for a while we get to detroit and he's got the broken thumb he throws for 458 and we're all going wow i think he's done it i think he's gonna make it and then the last two games happen brady becomes a free agent and they move on right suddenly he's and you've always said this like i think it was you know, give Josh Freeman a hundred million dollars, and then I think you said give Jameis Winston one point one million dollars. Isn't that what you? <laughs> I, and that's what the Saints did. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, is that nuts? It is. By nuts. the way, one point to one, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm Kudos not. I him. wouldn't. I'm not sneezing at one point one million. <laughs> nah, nah. Don't get me wrong. I haven't turned down more um, to to stay at the times, but uh, but yeah, it's. Um, you know, you root for good. You root for the best stories, and sometimes the worst years. Look, when Greg Shannon's last year, you had MRSA, right? <laughs> you you had uh, inactive suites. You had Josh Freeman on TV saying he wanted to be traded, right? I mean, we had all kinds of stuff going on that season. Yeah, 
So that was just those those are good years from a copy standpoint, but just like disastrous as far as the team goes. Right. So I don't know. It's we've covered a lot of losers, and you've covered a champion, and I've covered a champion, and I would just say that when they win, right? It's it's everybody seems to be happier about what you write. It's funny how that works. Exactly, which is why this might be the golden age of coaches in Tampa Bay with BA and I think so. John Cooper and Kevin Cash. Yeah, I think so. And 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 look, we don't know what's going to happen with Tom Brady. We'll discuss that, but um, but I do think that arrow up right and and again they all got to get past the coronavirus and who knows what it does to those teams and those franchises and those seasons but assuming they all get to play again those are there's some really good talented teams for all at one at one time suddenly it looks like tampa bay is relevant from a sports standpoint we just got to get back to sports always fun talking to you tommy great going uh, down the memory lane with the coaches man yeah, that was fun. We'll have to do it again yeah. sometime. Because there's more sure stories will. left on the table for sure. Absolutely. You can read them on pointer.org. Of course, uh, we did not win a Pulitzer uh, for the audio portion this year. New. I don't know why that happened, Tom. But snubbed. You got snubbed. We got snubbed. But uh, you can read about the, all the all the winners, I guess, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winners that Tom writes in his newsletter and do that on pointer.org. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks a lot, Rick. Hey, you know what? You think this podcast was good? Well, it was. And Tom Jones is great, and he's going to be back. That's right, back and better than ever tomorrow to talk a little Michael Jordan last dance and some Tom Brady as well. Also, we're going to have our mailbag segment, so get your questions ready. You can do that by reaching us on Twitter at SportsDayTB, or you can reach me on Twitter at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. For Steve Ersnick, I'm Rick Stroud, the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. 